Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, but trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Professional money managers, you know what they hate being? They hate being confused. They would rather be emphatically wrong then acknowledge they don't know what they're doing or what's going on. So the pros of all sorts of totems to help navigate confusing situations. Think of it as a playbook. And they're constantly consulting the playbook on days like today, where the Dow lost 112 points, S&P declined 0.35%, NASDAQ dropped 0.60%, and a lot of those real high flyers got crushed. For example, when inflation rages, the first thing you're supposed to do is sell U.S. treasuries. Second, you sell stocks with high-priced earnings multiples, because they trade on future earnings many years down the line. And those future dollars are eroded by inflation. Third, you hunker down at the short end of the yield curve, where you won't get hurt when the Fed starts raising rates. There's only one problem with that. Not one of these plays is working. We're getting some hardcore inflation numbers that are very hard to explain. The high multiple stocks got hit, okay, but treasuries went up in, val- in value, okay? I- 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 incredible. Now, get this, it's going to get even more I don't know, nauseating. I expect tomorrow's consumer price index, the CPI, I expect the reading to be outrageously high, red hot, smoke it. And it's going to be led by all things used cars because there are no cars to be had, of course, because we have a semiconductor shortage. But the response is not what anybody seems to expect. Bond yields are supposed to soar in reflation to, in response to inflation, right? Rates are supposed to go higher. Instead, they're plummeting. And that's making stocks that have good yields more attractive by comparison. What's happening here? Why isn't the hedge fund playbook working? Well, first and foremost, we've got some outside forces that we don't talk enough about. Now, our U.S. government bond market is the best and deepest bond market on Earth, which attracts money from across the world because our rates are higher than most first world nations. Even down here, our bond yields are too competitive to ignore Money can just be transferred so easily. It's such an easy thing to send a wire for a billion dollars. Consider our treasury markets a magnet for overseas billions. Second, speaking of global context, here's something we never talk about. You think we've got inflation? Overseas, it's much worse. People often forget that America is blessed with tremendous natural resources, especially natural gas. We have the wells and the pipelines to power and heat most homes in America. 
But skyrocketing natural gas prices are wreaking havoc on just about every other country on Earth. And so many of them need to import it, and we're the only real supply. Not here. We don't need to. Even with prices higher, well, we have no shortages of natural gas in the United States. Sure, the price of gasoline is higher than it's been in years. But I struggle, though, it's not that bad, especially when you remember that cars are much more fuel efficient than they used to be. Plus, in the end, we've really got energy inflation, while the rest of the developed world's got an energy crisis. Third, this action in the bond market screaming slow down as the economy is about to crater. But the action in the stock market says all systems go. Maybe stocks are right. Maybe bonds are wrong. Fourth, uh, maybe bond yields are plummeting here because Fed Chairman Jay Powell is right that the current bout of inflation still, after all this, is transitory. That means the price of increase, the price increases we're seeing now, well, they could be the peak. And tomorrow's CPI number is actually already out of date. Uh, I don't think anyone outside of Jay and me really believes this anymore. Right. And Jay seems like he's wavering. I'm steadfast. Finally, don't forget that these stupid CPI estimates are made by clueless economists who refuse to account for the obvious. We, you and I, know this number is going to be red hot, a smoker. Yet the commentary will be about how much it's worse than expected because these economists don't know how to forecast. They keep lowballing inflation. Almost no one on Wall Street believes in their estimates. The numbers will only be worse than expected because we have the worst people setting the expectations. So how do we make sense of these confusing scenarios? Simple. You can't. It's impossible to make sense of this market for this huge run. And at this very moment, the sooner you acknowledge that, the better. Given that this market's been rallying almost nonstop with different leadership groups every day, today was housing. Even as the broader averages got hit, you should just let things play out. OK, when the action is totally contradictory as it is right now, you can't just pick a side and say that's right. You have to wait for the market to give you a clear verdict. You can't give the market a verdict. It doesn't work like that. When I was a hedge fund manager, I often felt compelled to do something, anything, in order to take advantage of the pullbacks. But there are some moments like this one where you're doing that pullback buying is a mistake. Sometimes you just have to sit on your hands and wait for some clarity. So I'm going to give you an painful, uh, really a painful example. I talk a lot about the charitable trust. I talk a lot about the new club that we started. I'm very proud of it. I don't talk enough about some of the stocks that I got wrong. I talk about a lot of stocks I got right. Let's go into something that was miserable for me. Let's talk about the obliteration that was PayPal. Last night, PayPal reported a subpar quarter. This period was distorted by the company's endless breakup with eBay. Years ago, they were part of the same company, and they still, have, they still had a good relationship until now. Well, it's probably a good relationship, but it's certainly not helping PayPal as eBay breaks away. Management talked about a slowdown during back-to-school season, even though back-to-school was pretty good for many retailers. Most companies would kill for PayPal's growth, don't get me wrong, including the possibility that Amazon will let you pay for things with Venmo. But for this company, this quarter was a big disappointment. Now, normally, this is exactly the kind of thing I'd be looking for to buy here. A high-growth company with what seems like a temporary glitch. Dan Schulman has pretty much assured that to you, the CEO. And it's in the penalty box for who knows how long, maybe not that long. It's not often you can buy such a fast grower down here at 33% from its high with such a great balance sheet. But I can't recommend PayPal here today. I can't, and I didn't in your bulletins if you're a member of the club, because the macro picture is just too dicey, too murky. I suspect you could get a better chance to buy this beaten down stock, which is why the charitable trust is waiting for it to go lower. Our investment club will keep an eye on it for you. If you want PayPal, I'd wait to see if this level holds before you pull the trigger. If it does, then we probably will buy some, but we can't yet. I want to call on the overall market because PayPal stock is no longer strong enough to buck the overall trend. Mia culpa. I thought the company, which I've liked since it was at 30, would be stronger than this. I was wrong. 
All right, how about NVIDIA? Got that right. CEO Jensen Wong just gave his team keynote, which was heavily oriented toward artificial intelligence, including self-driving cars. The stock was initially up huge in pre-market trading. I hate that when that happens. And then it reversed, ultimately giving up all of its gains and then some. Don't buy those stocks that are up big at the opening, please. So now, though, that it's down, buying opportunity? No. No. Too vulnerable. There won't be a second keynote tomorrow. So the people who bought it today at the top, they're going to just bolt. Okay, that's what happens. Those people who pick some up right here, see, they're wearing it. That's what we used to say when we did. Hey, that guy's wearing NVIDIA. Well, you know what? You take NVIDIA off at the end of the day. A stock that climbed endlessly like NVIDIA is tricky. It's a stock that's plummeted endlessly like PayPal. If you haven't bought it when we said buy it for the trust, now you got to wait for a pullback. How about AMD? Another longtime Kramer fave that we own for the Chapel Trust. Stocks skyrocketed yesterday after they landed that fantastic deal to supply Facebook with chips for the metaverse. But I can't recommend that up here because the catalyst is now gone. Another wait-and-see situation. Now, these are three fantastic stocks of amazing companies that I love to buy on weakness normally. If we have more clarity on what's happening in the economy and the market hasn't already run so much, but we've had that monster rally already. And we can't truly explain why bond yields keep sinking at the same time that inflation's raging. Rather than making a hasty, ill-informed decision on the spot to say, you know what, we got to pick up some AMD. I'd rather just wait till we get more insight. Or to put it another way. Uh, back when Karen Kramer and I ran our old hedge fund, whenever I'd be jonesing to buy something into a sell-off like this, she'd print out 10 stocks with charts that look viable. But there was one exception. On days when we had zero macro clarity, she wouldn't even give me the charts. Instead, she'd say, just go to the movies, will you? There was a stretch where I must have seen The Fugitive with Harrison Ford half a dozen times before we finally got some clarity. Yeah, I don't care. So you want to figure out this market? Hurry up and wait. In the meantime, go to the movies. I hear Dunn surprisingly not awful, unlike the David Lynch version from the 80s. The bottom line, sooner or later, the market will make up its mind, and then you can make up yours. If you haven't sold any stock to raise money, maybe take a little off the table. You got my permission. The setup's just a little too confused here, frankly. So it's good to keep some cash in your pocket until we stumble onto enough clarity to start making sense of the situation. There, I said it. I said it. We don't know what's going on. What the hell? Want to tell the truth? It's kind of my stock and trade. Mark in Wisconsin, Mark. Jim, thanks for taking my call. Uh, you're a restaurateur. You own Bar San Miguel. You might even use this stock. It just reported uh, bad earnings. It's down 6% in aftermarket. Uh, my question, should I use a lower point of entry to buy more toast? Ticker T-O-S-T, or should I uh, wait even longer? Thank well, you. I don't know why you have to buy it. I mean, I said that this is a one incredibly, incredibly competitive, unbelievable guys coming in from everywhere. You know when toast? They got very lucky. They were able to come public. Should they have been able to come public? I don't know. But there's a lot of companies, and some kind, someone's going to be toast. Dave and Arizona, please, Dave. Hi, Jim. Hi, Dave. My stock is IBM. After the last quarter and the Kendrill spinoff, what's your view? Buy, sell, or hold? Well, I had said that we put it in the bullpen for the club, and then I waited to see. I wanted to see how the quarter was. The quarter was, uh, frankly, uh, suboptimal. And uh, the action today was just down and out. Let's just say daunting. And also for Kendrill, uh, there's a lot of, how about this, better fish to fry. 
Right now, money is best left in your pocket or actually put some in your pocket until we get a little less confused. Come on, we've had an unbelievable run. Do not be so greedy. Bulls make money, bears make money, hogs, boom, slaughtered. We got to wait for some clarity before we do any buying. On Mad Money Tonight, DoorDash has its sights set on delivering more than just local. With got, it's got nationwide shipping. It can send like a cake tea or something like that, maybe even a cheesesteak, although I'd suggest that that doesn't, if they don't hold well. They don't hold up. Anyway, DoorDash is one of its strategies, but more important, had a great quarter. I got the CEO. Then Roblox soared today after earnings. So are the pandemic players here to stay as the world reopens, or was it just a short squeeze? I'm going to talk to the company's top brass. And Adnet has seen its fair share of supply chain disruptions in its 100-year history. So how did today's troubles rival those or compare to the past? I'm learning from the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Looking for a rewarding, life changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? With almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for our students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and our proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. This earnings season has turned into a crucible for the COVID stocks, where we separate the ones that can keep winning from the ones that simply can't hold up in a world that's going back to normal. The pandemic plays that can't become post-pandemic plays, well, they've turned into roadkill. Witness the 40-plus percent decline in Peloton since it disappointed last week. But the ones that can deliver see their stocks explode higher, like the one we just saw with Roblox. It was all, how about DoorDash? That's the online food delivery powerhouse that just reported for the close. A little complicated. While DoorDash had better-than-expected revenues, total orders and gross order value, they also had a larger-than-expected earnings loss. But the top-line growth and an $8 billion all-stock acquisition of a finished delivery company that will double down on international delivery have left people the very excited about the situation. I think this one requires a closer look. So let's dig deeper with Tony Hsu. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of DoorDash. Learn more about the numbers and the story behind the numbers. Mr. Hsu, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to be with you, James. Well, there were a lot of people, Tony, who felt that once the pandemic wound down, people would start going out. They wouldn't be ordering in. To me, it looks like from your top line momentum that business is stronger than ever. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think we're super thrilled with, you know, the results for the third quarter. I mean, as you saw, both top line and revenue grew north of 40%. And this is after, you know, two huge years in which the pandemic has really accelerated our business on top of growing triple digits every year beforehand. And so I think what you're clearly seeing, as you said, is that even as customers are returning inside stores to dine in, which I'm really thrilled about, I know that the U.S. Census Bureau stated, you know, record all-time high sales for in-store dining. We're also still seeing growth in our delivery business, which really shows you know, just how incremental the delivery use case is to in-store dining. What I didn't realize was how, uh, how well you're doing overseas. And this Walt acquisition would make it seem like that you're just going to accelerate, doubling down on what looks like the fastest growing markets. It absolutely is an acceleration. You know, today's announcement in partnership with Volt is is really about, uh, you know, accelerating what has already been working. And it represents our long-term investment in building a global business. And you're absolutely right. I mean, our, our international business, particularly in Canada, Australia, and Japan, are our fastest growing markets. And from third-party estimates, we actually gain meaningful market share uh, in the quarter as well as this year. And, and with today's you know, news, it really, you know, the partnership with Volt will really lay the foundation for us to operate across you know, over 20 countries, serving 700 million plus people, and, and gives us the foundation to have single-threaded leadership and focus on building a global business. How many of those businesses and how many here in the United States are really uh, larger chains that have decided they can't do it themselves, they need DoorDash? Well, actually, you know, there are chains everywhere, uh, as you stated, but, but, you know, that predominantly is um, an American story where, you know, chains are a big part of the restaurant industry. And a lot of the markets outside of the U.S., particularly in Volt's markets, um, it, it's really um, primarily in concert in building this business together with small, medium-sized businesses. And, and, and that's really what I find super inspiring, given the entire mission for DoorDash and for Volt is to transform local commerce. And we, you know, we're just thrilled today to be able to announce this news in which we not only find ourselves with a team that shares the same vision to transform local commerce, but also the same values in how we operate. I mean, this, at the end of the day, is an execution business. It's not a set it and forget it business. And so who we operate with, how we do business, you know, caring about capital efficiency, ripping out every penny of inefficiency and, and, and you know, building a business that obsesses over the customer. That's really what the two teams are about. All right. Well, since I met you, where there's been a lot going on, uh, you've got national delivery. Uh, you also uh, do liquor. These are both. Well, national delivery is new, but you have high hopes for these. Absolutely. I mean, DoorDash has an ambitious roadmap to transform local commerce. In fact, we have five you know, key priority areas. We're becoming the number one food app in which you know, we are just wanting to be top of mind for every consumer when it comes to all things food. Uh, number two, we're entering new categories, um, especially in categories like convenience delivery, where we're the already leading platform in the U.S., for that category, grocery delivery. We're continuing to help businesses build their own digital business with products like Borash Drive and Storefront. We announced about a month ago the launch of our ads business. And today, in a big way, we're talking about our international pursuits. So there's a lot going on, like you said, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, whether it's you know helping um, merchants see us as the first place to grow revenue, whether it's through delivery, pickup, or now even shipping across state lines, 
um, or getting into new categories in which we've seen record numbers of our monthly active consumers, now 12% of them shopping outside of the restaurants category. They're all part of the activity at DoorDash right now. Now, one of the things you did, and I'm quite proud of you, is that you, when people were down and out in the restaurant business, it wasn't just the Small Business Administration, the federal government that helped. You guys directly decided, you know what, we are going to help these small merchants. And it was real. It wasn't some sort of uh, uh, chimerical thing that didn't really work. And now I see you're ordering, uh, you're making it so delivery could be uh, mean there's been problems with injury and theft. You're taking care of that from the delivery person, too. So you've got the basis covered of who is involved in your chain of success. Well, we've always wanted to build a business that not only was an economic success, but a business that actually would have a legacy that, you know, the entire team would be proud of and frankly, you know, would outlive any of us. I mean, the, the goal of DoorDash is to make every local business, small, medium and large, successful. You know, we do that through our marketplace in which we're bringing them incremental customers from our app. We're giving them tools from our platform to allow them to build their own digital businesses. And we're also taking care of all the stakeholders. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, we were very proud of our multi-hundred million dollar investment to reduce commissions during the pandemic, as well as all of the safety efforts that we took during the pandemic, as well as what we're taking now for dashers, as well as merchants and consumers. And it seems like you're still finding dashers. People want that additional income. That may be part of the labor conundrum. This is that it's better to work for DoorDash than it is to work full time. And we're not picking up those numbers at the labor department. Well, yeah, I mean, in the in the third quarter, we had over three million dashers earn over two point eight billion dollars on the DoorDash platform. And I think what it really goes to show is just, you know, how complementary dashing um, in which you have access to flexible earnings opportunities is with traditional labor. Now, I just want to be sure uh, to be sure you're you're not making money. I don't want people to say, listen, uh, the profits here are big. That's not the point, though. It's the opportunity, which, you know, I agree with. And the idea that you gave money back or gave those discounts, that might have been that might have been a sacrifice of profitability short term. But I think we both have to admit it was just a fantastic long term investment. It's not just I think building a business um, to me is uh, certainly about making it economically successful, but it's also about building meaning and ultimately building um, something that will outlast and endure. And I think that starts with service and serving all of the stakeholders that we're privileged to be partners with. And, you know, just speaking, you know, from the recent quarter, as well as the business, I mean, our contribution margins in our U.S. restaurant marketplaces have never been higher. And so what you're really seeing in terms of the P&L is we're reinvesting into new categories, launching new countries. And certainly, again, with today's announcement in partnership with Volt, we're really doubling down and signaling that, you know, we have a very strong economic model business. We've always believed in building sustainable businesses. But right now, the time is to invest for long term growth. Couldn't agree more with you, Tony. And you again, you were good for it for everything you said you were going to do for small business. I know firsthand. Tony Shu, co-founder and CEO of DoorDash. It's always great to see you, sir. Likewise, Jim. Thanks uh, so much. Thank you. Look, I who knows where what happens with the stock short term. But you know what? This is it, this is the winner in the category. Everybody's back in. Roblox soared today, proving that pandemic players may be here to stay. But with Facebook moving in on the metaverse, can Roblox continue to maintain its position in the space? Kramer's talking to the CEO next. Is America's primary system working? 
Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, now how do we make sense of a move like we saw today in Roblox? I mean, this is one of my absolute favorites. It's the stock that I picked to win the Super Bowl game that we play around here. It's a popular online gaming platform that arguably is the closest thing to the metaverse we have right now. Coming into last night's quarter, Wall Street had grown skeptical of the story. There was a lot of doubt about the durability of Roblox's growth as kids returned to school and the People's Republic of China makes it harder for children to play video games. We did not lose uh, any hope in this, but I saw Wall Street diminish on it. But when Roblox reported, they delivered some moderately better than expected headline numbers. But more important, when you drill down. I mean, you saw a major acceleration in user growth, in acceleration in engagement, and acceleration in, in uh, bookings in the month of October. On top of that, you had a bunch of moron short sellers who just couldn't resist, thinking that this one had to be the next Peloton. Do they ever not know what they're doing? This is absurd. And that's why we are so happy to Mr. bring back Mr. Bazooki, David Bazooki, who really understands, well, uh, kind of what we're about mad money. And we like to think we know what he's about at Roblox. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, Jim, thank you, as always, for having us on the show. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I reach out to the Roblox community. Well, I'll tell you, I'm so thrilled you're here. I looked at, I was scared you, know, you go through things. There's this key metrics page that you had, October 2021. It basically said, look, business is much stronger than we thought. This was the month that all the people who were betting against you were going to say, hey, it collapsed. Everyone's back to school. No one wants us. You are now part of the firmament, aren't you, sir? Yeah, I mean, we've always been optimistic, Jim. We're creating a platform where people don't just play, but they're starting to learn together, work together, experience entertainment together. And what we saw in October is two things. One, hopefully people are getting back more and more to their normal lives and we're, we're moving through COVID. But at the same time, I mean, we saw incredible results. Q3 bookings over 600 million, 638. Incredible. October growth, very, very strong. So it validates our vision of, of the platform we're building. Now, before I go into exactly how the great that number was, I think there's something more important that you would want me to read. In the Q3 2021 supplement materials, uh, there's, a, there's a chart. Who is spending the most I have ever seen? You have doubled down. Trust and safety. This is obviously your major focus, the amount of money you are spending on this. Tell our audience why this is important for Roblox. Yeah, we have a, a really a 200 million people every month coming to our platform. And safety and civility is, is a foundation that we've, we've built our platform on. We started, as you correctly know, with younger players, and we provided an, an opportunity for them to safely connect with friends, connect with 
um, people they can't be in touch with in, in the real world. So we have a lot of people working on this, thousands of people in the cloud 24-7, keeping our society civil. And we believe it's a great foundation to grow from. Okay, so look, David, I know that you are a person who would say gym comparisons are odious, but I watched a video last week about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, and I said, oh, that's terrific. He's almost up to where Roblox is. I mean, aren't you guys doing this already? Yeah, I mean, we've been at this for 16 years, Jim, and our business plan for 17 years ago predicted this new category where people can come together For the last 16 years, we've been innovating on this category, building an amazing community, not just of players, but an amazing developer community, 2 million strong, that makes everything on our platform uh, a rich economy. And our whole company is really focused on the innovation to drive and shepherd this vision of what some people call the metaverse or human co-experience forward. Well, uh, uh, Dylan Reebok, whose birthday is today on our staff, was saying, in many ways, these guys are the YouTube uh, of the metaverse, YouTube of creating content. I think that's how we have to start thinking about you, which is why I think your stock is worth a frack, is trading at a fraction of what it's really worth. Yeah, well, this pl- our platform is really unique. We have this amazing community of content creators which very soon will have one making over $100 million a year relative to six or eight years ago where they were all hobbyists. So they they participate in this virtual economy. But the creations that they build are platforms to people to come together. You know, we have young people visiting their grandparents and finding it's more fun to go fishing together than to talk on the phone. So the creators work in great concert with our community. All right, well, let's talk about aging up for a second. Before I came out here tonight, I donned a 456 shirt that Will on our staff here gave me to wear. And I did that for one reason, because when people see a good show like Squid, OK, the Squid Games, people start writing for it. And to me, I mean, that's great. But yeah, look, this is for age up. I said it's for age up, but it's just spontaneous. Is that what happens? Yeah, so I was also a Squid Game character for <laughs> Halloween. So high five, Jim. <laughs> Uh, I was zero, zero, one. Um, what we saw, we see it with many trends in society is an amazingly responsive creator community that latches onto these trends. And rather than in months, but instead in days, leveraging the power of our tool set, of our crowd distribution, of our search and discovery, brings these experiences to life. And more, more and more brands love that these experiences bring, you know, come to life. For example, Vans World came to life recently and we had over 40 million people go and try on Vans and, and experience <laughs> Vans when they couldn't in real life. So amazing responsiveness to, to these kinds of trends. And, you know, the last conference call, I thought it was very funny. You never even touch advertising. You know, you, it's immersive. It's around the rich quality experiences. I mean, the stock is at $63 billion. All right, I got to tell you, the advertising opportunity is 63 billion and that is a very small fraction of what roblox makes isn't it yeah we we're very fortunate we built our business uh in a way where people are spending virtual currency right now and supporting this developer community so we've created a very high quality experience there is a vision for advertising like we've seen with with brands that want to authentically and natively connect with their fans that we think is consistent with our values of respecting the community and doing things in a very high quality way. 
So I, I do think there's a, there's a lovely feature, future for high quality brands on our platform. And we've seen interesting things where the developers on our platform are starting to interact with brands. Recently, one, a very popular experience on Roblox Jailbreak is now hosting vehicles from NASCAR within the Roblox experience, which we didn't have to really get in the middle of. That was a a really organic connection between a brand and one of the Roblox creators. Well, I want to salute you. I, mean, I think people continue to underestimate your company, which is why the stock is such a bargain. But that's all right. You're a humble person who's done an amazing thing. And thank you for spending all that money on safety. That is what's the most important point, especially when we got young kids involved. I want to thank David Buzuki. He's the founder and CEO of Roblox, which even after today's 30-point move, I'm telling you, is undervalued. David, thank you for coming on Mad Money. Jim, thank you, and thank you to all your fans, and thank you again to the Roblox community. Fantastic. Yeah, money's back in. This 100-year-old company has seen its fair share of disruptions. But how do today's post-pandemic supply chain constraints rival those of the past? Kramer's getting a read on the electronics components business with the CEO of Avnet. Next. For months, we've been hearing about the paralyzed supply chain for all sorts of goods, but especially technology. So what does that mean for the companies that control the supply chain? In some cases, it means they're coining money. Take Avnet, one of the world's leading, leading technology distributors, solutions providers. Look, these guys provide customers with all sorts of electronic components, but especially semiconductors. When the company reported a week and a half ago, it blew away the estimates with incredible top and bottom line numbers and gave great guidance. Better yet, Adnet's management said they expect the current tight conditions to last well into next year. In response, the stock jumped 8% in just a handful of days. Although since then, it's pulled back a bit from its highs to the point where it's trading at less than eight times earnings. That's much lower than I remember this one trading. So could this be a steal here? Let's check in with Phil Gallagher, who's the CEO of AdNet, to get an update on his business and the broader tech supply chain situation. Mr. Gallagher, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, thanks, Jim. Appreciate you having me. Good to oh, see you again. Good to see you. Okay, so for one thing I, people have to understand, that when I talk about uh, the supply chain problems with AdNet, You've had 100 years of dealing with supply chain issues. So first, congratulations. And give me this. Put this in perspective, will you? Has it ever been this bad? This is a different one, Jim. Of those 100 years, I've been with Avnet going on 39. So uh, I've been there about 40 percent of the company's existence. By the way, we started in Radio Row right there in New York City post-World War I. I, this one's different, Jim. I've been around through you know, the, the 99, 2000, 2001 cycle, the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. This one just is different. Of course, we had the, the COVID situation, right, which impacted manufacturing around the world, impacted demand around the world. So what's happened is, as demand has spiked up in many different verticals, the manufacturing's had a tough time keeping pace with it. And the electronics are versus the previous cycle, Jim. Look at our electronics and semiconductors, computer products. Just look around, they're everywhere right now. So the proliferation, I think, is driving a little bit more of the anxiety in the supply chain. Well, it does seem like that someone might have a building a vehicle, and there might be 40 semiconductor chips in it. And they have 39, they're missing one. How come you can't call out that and find that one? Well, it depends on which one you're looking for. <laughs> I mean, hopefully, you know, maybe, maybe we can help them out. But that is part of the issue, what's starting to happen. They're, you know, they're taking all the product, and then they got that one chip, you know, that they can't get. I mean... 
It may not be coming from us. I mean, look at the, the auto guys. they got, you know, trucks and cars sitting there waiting for that one board that they need to finish the product on. So, again, I, I think that's where some of the confusion is. There, it's not all the products that are tight. Right. You know, James, there's a lot of the, you know, 70% of the commodities, if you will, may be available and, and not too bad a lead time. But there's going to be that 10, 20, 30%, that little microcontroller chip or what have you that you can't get. And you're talking about some extended lead times of 50, 52 weeks, 40 weeks in some of those cases. Well, let's go over those. You, you talk about on the comms call a controller space or an analog, certain discrete, certain power sensors are just really, really tight. OK, so let's say I, I can make those those chips. Why don't I have my factories running 24-7 or are they already? And why can't I very quickly expand? Why can't I call Lamb? Why can't I call Novellus and say, listen, I need this <laughs> stuff right now. You know, I call uh, KLA and say, look, I need I got a backyard that's big, put up some buildings, give me this stuff. Well, that's, that's some of the challenging part. I know you've had some CEOs in the semiconductor space uh, on your show. They're investing tens of 20s of $30 billion each, right? There's, uh, the capacity increase is going to be upwards of 27% just in capital. But the issue, Jim, is these products are very technical, right? And, and the process alone, by the time you get a factory up, you're talking 24 months before you get any kind of throughput. So not like you can just go down the street and go get it from somebody else. If it's not available, it's just not available, okay, which is why we're asking our customers for much lead time and visibility and transparency to what their demands are so we can try and get ahead of it and do the pipelining for them appropriately. Well, isn't there the equivalent of digital realty where you made that announcement? Someone like that, that you can work with side by side? This seems like a great collaboration for them and you. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting one, and, and that's brand new. We just announced that today. That's, that's a, uh, they're listening on NASDAQ, actually. We're going to uh, collaborate with them. So they're actually putting together some, uh, uh, some cloud-based systems that allows companies to manage their own video and, and content. Matter of fact, their, their, their solution surrounds uh, AMD and Xilinx, by the oh. way. And I know you just had Lisa Sue on the call sure. on the show last week, I believe. Absolutely. So it's good technology, relatively new. Okay, so uh, there does seem to be a surfeit of some chips. I mean, we keep hearing that there's too many cell phone chips at certain part, too many base station chips. I mean, the imbalance, Phil, is just nuts. It just seems like nobody saw anything coming, but you've got so many smart people. I can't figure out how this happened. Well, I'll use the word transparency and visibility, Jim. I think what's happened is a lot of supply chains have broken down because customers are losing some of the visibility to the end markets and visibility to their manufacturing, okay, which is where we come in. I like to say we're in the center of the technology supply chain. Right. We also do design, by the way, because yeah, we can now do, be the orchestrator. right? We can, we can help aggregate that demand and feed it okay, to different manufacturing sites for our customers you know, and our OEMs. Uh, but a lot of that, I think, was we, we just lost the, the, the industry just kind of lost, lost track of that. And keep in mind, I mean, you had the COVID issue. That, that definitely threw... A monkey wrench into manufacturing, particularly places like Malaysia, where there's a lot of semiconductor manufacturers there. And when the COVID hit hard there, you know, they kind of had to, had to shut, down, shut down production. But, Phil, are you getting a call, I would say, every day from a major manufacturer says, Phil, can you help me? I mean, I need, what, 100,000 of X so I can put Y out? I mean, is it like that with you every day? Yes. I had three calls today, Jim. So, so C-level executives calling. And, you know, some might need 10,000. Some might need 500. Some, we actually help them design in a different product. Maybe that they, if, they, if one product's obsolete or they can't get it, can we help them design in a chip that might be more readily available? So it's, I'd say it's not discriminating, Jim. This, this, this shortage is pretty, pretty much across the board. And I think, you know, I, I have this tagline. I say, nobody cares about supply chains. 
until you can't get what you need. Then everybody says, hey, what, what happened? I think we're all getting educated uh, on, on the uh, importance of supply chain. Well, I've got to tell you, I, I know I've been. I mean, I felt that it was the greatest thing in the world that we had this <laughs> just in time and everything was so good. And we nah. were taught over and over again, this is no inventory, how fabulous it was. It didn't work. It didn't work. But you know no. what? Adnet's never disappointed in 100 years. So I want to congratulate you, Phil, for coming out ahead in this. And I love, I do love, by the way, the digital reality announcement. That's what people have to do. They have to partner with you. That's the way to do it best. Phil Gallagher, CEO of Adnet. Great to talk to you, sir. Thanks a lot, Jim. Appreciate it. All right, thank day. you. Eight times earnings is ridiculous for this guy. I mean, it's, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just, but I can say it's wrong. Their money's back after the break. Just chill out. Is this Chill Master Jay? The Chill Man is in the house. He's happy. The lightning round is coming up when Mad Money returns. It is time! It's time for the lightning round! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy, come on the lightning round. I'm going to start with Iftikhar in Florida. Iftikhar! Oh, Jim, thanks so much for taking my call. Of course. Listen, uh, a, a few months ago you were uh, talking about Poshmark. Uh, I wanted to see what your opinion they about Poshmark the is band. right now. They missed the quarter band tonight, and uh, it's interesting because everybody else in the industry seems to be doing quite well. So that is what I call disappointing. All right, let's go to Kevin in New Hampshire. Kevin. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, my Kevin. Equity to, my equity tonight is Tandem Diabetes Care. They are doing very well. And I'm going to give it two for I like tandem diabetes, and I continue to support Dexcom. I think that they are doing amazingly well. And, uh, well, congratulations both. Let's go to Michael in Minnesota. Michael. Hey, booyah, Jim, and thanks for taking my call. All right. Hey, Dr. Kramer, this REIT posted robust earnings last week, and the stock's risen 10%. Penny for your thoughts on II. PR. Okay, everybody type when they try to get me to recommend Tilray or console, you know, or you know, that canopy growth or anyone, I always come back and say the same thing. It's innovative industrial properties. Ben, uh, ben Stoto, who's my research director, and I are constantly talking about how this is the only one to buy. But the only one. Let's stop thinking about it. Dan in Illinois, Dan. Jim, booyah. booyah. Love, you, love your show. My wife and I watch your show every night. Wow. We love you, my friend. Thank you. Calling about big five sporting goods. BG they hit the F- ball out of the park, and I'm going to give you a two for two. I got a lot of two for tonight. Dix is doing well, too. Both of them are doing well. Sporting goods did not stop as something to do when the pandemic wound down. We discovered the outdoors, and we liked them. I need to go to Jay in Florida. Jay. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing well. How about you, Jay? Um, doing okay. Uh, just and, okay. Uh, yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm disabled, so uh, I, I I just watch a lot of TV. Right. But uh, my quote today, I'm, uh, I'm wondering, uh, we think of Nokia. Nokia, I like Nokia. They're making a comeback. Nokia's doing well. I think you might have a winner there. I need to go to Iran in New Jersey. Iran. Hey, going, James? I don't know. You tell me what's happening. Yeah, I would like to know about uh, Valley, the copper stock. No, the iron, we're not buying our iron ore. We think it's late in the cycle. I'm going to take a pass on that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the 
Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. How do we make sense of this big GE breakup? Let me put it like this. If you were starting a company today, you'd never create one that's part aerospace, part healthcare, and part power, including renewables. They make no sense under the same roof. You might as well stick out with a soda company in there. Maybe, maybe a film studio. That, more than anything else, explains why GE's three-way breakup makes so much sense. It's logical, rational. These were three totally distinct businesses all along. I applaud CEO Larry Culp for paying down a monumental $75 billion in debt. Never could have done this deal if they didn't. That's the number that shows you what a mess GE was before he took over. Now that the balance sheet's been cleaned up, he can spin off the healthcare and power business into separate entities. Take a couple of years to finish this, but it'll be with sound finances, and that's ma- that matters a great deal. But how did GE even end up here? Why can't these big cross-sector conglomerates get any respect? First, Wall Street lives for sponsorship, and the investment houses cover stocks based on their industry. Money managers like to call analysts and ask for their opinions on how companies are doing. They want their hands held. At one point, you'd have analysts exclusively devoted to big conglomerates. But that's no longer the case, as most of the major ones have already broken up. So it's much easier for a stock to gain sponsorship when it's a pure play on a particular sector. Second, did GE really have anything to gain from keeping these disparate units under the same roof? Are there supply savings, cost savings? Can one business learn from another? Now, you can always claim there's some cross-pollination going on, and that happened at one time at GE. There, there might have been some here. But I think any mi- uh, minor savings are completely overshadowed, if not obliterated, by what happens when you unleash these businesses as independent companies. Now, we've seen this movie before. We saw it with United Technology spun off Otis Elevator and Carrier Temperature Controls, then merged its aerospace business with Raytheon. The result? And almost immediate payback, carrier notice, have been outstanding investments. I know it's easy to make fun of cliches like a laser focus, but it's good to be more focused. That's exactly what this breakup will give you. Finally, the original justification for keeping these unrelated businesses under the same roof is that they're supposed to even each other out. The idea was that GE's power or hospital hardware divisions would offset the cyclical nature of the boom and bust aerospace business. Like communism, it's well-conceived in theory, but it doesn't work in real life. In practice, GE just had three separate cycles. The power business used to be great in the heyday of natural gas spending. Those turbines, uh, which uh, sold like hotcakes during that period. Healthcare had a fantastic life sciences business they had to ultimately sell to Danaher in order to raise cash. Even at, at their peak, this combination hasn't been able to excite anyone for 20 years, hence why you had to do this. But as separate entities, now let's think about this. A healthcare company based on high-demand MRI machines that they can't even get enough of, that's a good one. The power renewables business could be very enticing for money managers who want to go green, and there's a lot of them out there. Do not get me wrong. There are still some fine conglomerates out there. Uh, Honeywell, owned by the Charitable Trust, 3M, although it's stalled here over some intractable raw cost issues. We own Honeywell because its different businesses are each so strong that they wouldn't necessarily get a higher valuation as independent entities. And of course, there's the ultimate conglomerate, Berkshire Hathaway. That gets a relatively high valuation, but that's, of course, because of the Oracle of Omar, Warren Buffett. So for now, General Electric should not be mourned. The divisions don't make sense under one roof. And while the breakup might take a couple of years to get done, I think it's worth hanging on to because I trust CEO Larry Culp to do it right. Why not? He fixed the balance sheet practically overnight, solved GE's long-term care insurance morass, and turned around the ailing power business. Congratulations to you, Larry Culp. You saved the company, and while we might miss the GE name, the divisions themselves were a house divided, which, of course, could not stand. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you I'd find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. 
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.